from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig with details. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. A warning. This episode contains language and depictions of violence that may be disturbing to some listeners. One day, I was standing at the bars catching the breeze, and all of a sudden, I seen something brown hit the wall in front of my cell. I looked at it, and it trickled down, and a, a, a whiff of wind caught it and hit me right in the face, and it was feces. They were um, buying and selling feces to throw on other individuals in Lucasville. And, you know, if a guy had HIV, he can get a, a premium price for his shit, you know, because it was infected. How you gonna live with that? How you gonna go on with your life after having somebody's shit thrown into your mouth? Or having three men hold you down while they penetrate you? How you gonna look yourself in the mirror after that? Serving time at Lucasville before the uprising was ugly and appalling. But life on death row, where Keith Lamar is sent after being found guilty of killing five men, might just finally break him. It puts you through all this bullshit. And you and if you get angry, see, that's proof that he's an animal. No, that's proof that I'm a human being, that this shit hurt, that the shit you're doing to me is painful. I'm Leah Rothman. This is The Real Killer. Episode 5. Good luck, Keith. In 1995, Keith Lamar is sitting on death row, facing the dreadful and torturous road that lies ahead. As I was about to embark on this journey, I was surrounded by some older gentlemen who, one of whom had already been on death row, and he, along with a few other older guys, encouraged me to adopt these attributes to stay focused and stay the course, because once you are put on death row, it was a decades-long process before or if you were able to prove your innocence. So as part of this process, Keith takes a second name. 
Bomani Hindu Shakur. Bomani, which means mighty soldier. Hindu means prepare for war. And Shakur means the thankful. Bomani, or Keith, as he says I can call him, talks to me from death row. I would need to be a mighty soldier, prepare for the various wars and struggles, inner and outer, and, you know, somehow achieve a state of gratitude, you know, because without gratitude, it's impossible to generate positive energy. And maybe some of that positive energy is working. Shortly after arriving at Mansfield Correctional Institution, Keith gets some news that could affect his case. It all goes back to that list of 43 names of prisoner witnesses and the 11 pages of potentially exculpatory or favorable statements. When prosecutors handed them over to Keith and his team, they refused to specify which prisoner said what, claiming they had promised the inmates anonymity. Well, in two other trials that followed Keith's, prosecutors went ahead and matched some of those names and statements for their defense teams. In some of those statements, prisoners point the finger at perpetrators other than Keith. Herman Carson, one of Keith's 1995 trial attorneys, immediately files a motion for a new trial. Well, I mean, it was it was totally unfair to begin with not to give it to us. But then within a matter of weeks for two other people to have access to it for their trials really was, you know, almost the ultimate of unfairness. Why did you give it to them? Why couldn't we have it? And it gave a lingering feeling it was because they thought with that, it would increase our chances of not being convicted. But the judge denied it. Judge Crow. Yeah. Judge Crow denies Herman's request for a new trial. You denied the motion for a new trial. Tell me about that. Well, <laughs> I don't remember much about it other than, uh, let me think. I must have not thought that that was uh, something that uh, would have prejudiced the defense that much. And I'm guessing that's why I uh, ruled the way I ruled, but I don't know. Was it that prejudicial to him? Even if he had to match up names, what was he going to do with them? I guess would be a way to say saying it. Judge Crow ultimately allowed the verdict to stand. And I remember him walking past me on his way out of the courtroom. He walked right past his defense table and he came right up to me and he said, good luck, Keith. And it was just one of those bewildering moments where I sunk within myself. Yeah, you know, good luck, Keith. When he was actually doing things to make sure that my luck was anything but good. So, no new trial for Keith, but it begs the question. If the jury in Keith's trial could have heard some of the evidence allowed in the two trials that followed his, might the outcome been different? By the way, I've tried reaching out to the jurors I could find, but haven't heard back from any of them. Just days after Judge Crow denies Keith's motion for a new trial— Another devastating blow. He loses the most important person in his life, his grandfather. Shortly after I arrived there on death row, that my grand my grandfather ultimately died, and my grandmother died. I think while I was waiting to uh, be sentenced. Well, my granddad um, and I were very, very close, but he was more than a granddad to me. He was my friend. He was my father. 
he was my mentor, my teacher. You know, he had dropped out of school early on in his life, so he was functionally illiterate. Couldn't really read or write, but he knew how to fix everything, knew how to cook anything. And so he was a uh, uh, jack of all trades, even though he didn't have a formal education. He was really, really brilliant, really, really dignified. And, you know, one of the last conversations he and I shared, he was just trying to use his his last breath basically to use his limited vocabulary to get me to see my own worth. It just seemed like such a waste to have this important person in my life and then to lose him and have his last thought of me leaving this world, me being on death row. It was just really devastating, yeah. As Keith mourns the loss of now both of his grandparents and his shot at a new trial, trying to adjust to his new reality is incredibly difficult. Describe the conditions at Mansfield for me. Well, you know, um, you know, those of us who were sentenced to death as a result of our last involvement in the riot, once we were sentenced to death, we wouldn't be allowed to enter into the main death row population in what was an unprecedented move. We were also be placed in solitary confinement. And so um, we were put into this little small area about five or six cells. The phone was taken off the wall, preventing us to make calls to our family. We couldn't get food parcels, clothes parcels, which other death row prisoners were able to do. You know, our mail was routinely thrown into the garbage. All of us were getting, you know, cigarette butts put out in our food. And so it was, it was a very difficult, difficult uh, period. So in April of 1996, Keith and the four others from Lucasville sentenced to death protest the oppressive conditions with a hunger strike. About a week later... Someone from the administration convinced us that uh, our claims were being taken serious. Believing their voices had been heard, Keith and the others end their hunger strike. But Keith says months go by with no real improvements to their conditions. So they try again. And we went on another hunger strike not long after that, and that also ended in defeat. And I just felt uh, morally dejected. I just felt dejected. My spirits were really low because they kept turning the screws. And, you know, I started having nightmares, waking up in the middle of the night in cold sweats. Um, you know, several times I was kicking and punching out, striking out at the wall. I broke my foot at one point, my metatarsal. And so I just felt like I was um, on the uh, verge of losing it, losing myself. At rock bottom, Keith attempts the improbable. On behalf of himself and the four others from Lucasville, he petitions the warden to transfer them to another prison out of state. So it was above their pay grade, you know, how they phrased it. And so we were left basically just to kind of sink or swim. And I just felt like I was sinking, felt like I was dying where I was um, located. This little small little space, it just felt like the whole, um, uh, the walls were closing in on me. And I just felt I had to get out of there. And I was just desperate. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. 
Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. After two unsuccessful hunger strikes at Mansfield Correctional Institution, an unequivocal no to a prison transfer, and a serious decline in his mental state, Keith takes a drastic approach. So tell me about the riot at Mansfield. Yeah, I wouldn't necessarily call it a, a riot. Keith corrects me. He calls it a disturbance. He says his plan was simple. He just wanted to get everyone in the pod to destroy it and make it unlivable, hoping prison officials would then transfer them all out of state. It was, you know, uh, foolish as I look back on it, but that was the best I could do under the circumstance with, with what I had at the time, you know. So on September 5th, 1997, as Keith is leaving the rec yard, he asks a corrections officer coming to handcuff him to first kick him the basketball nearby. Then... And I bust out of the cage, overpowered this one guard, and I took his keys from him, and I ultimately ended up opening all the cell. Totally irrational, I understand, but I snapped. You know, that's the only way I can really describe it. When you overpowered the guard, did you have a mm -hmm. weapon? Yeah, I had a makeshift knife. It was a, um, a piece of metal out of a 13-inch um, color television. Wasn't sharpened down, didn't have any sharp edges to it. But it looked at grimacing, it looked at gruesome. And if you, you know, uh, in a pressurized situation, you wouldn't know that it wasn't really a weapon. But of course, the COs, they didn't know that. So I had it in my waistband so they could see it. And, you know, so I didn't really have to assault any of the guards. I didn't have to use a weapon because, you know, it was because of that ideal that I had a weapon that they were more compliant. But some prisoners are assaulted. I'm surprised when I learn who and why. Yeah, with some guys who, doing those hunger strikes, 
One of the things that we had tried during the second hunger strike was to have food in reserve. Part of the strategy of being in a hunger strike in order to, you know, last longer uh, is to have food smuggled into it. So we had bought food prior to the hunger strike as a strategy to extend the hunger strike. And some of the prisoners who was on the other side told us, told on, uh, alerted the COs that we had food in the garbage can. And so those, the guys we had kind of sought out and we destroyed their property, their television, their radios, roughed them up a little bit. But, you know, we weren't trying to, you know, like kill these individuals or anything like that. You know, but um, I did have an ax to grind with several prisoners who had assisted the administration. Wait, what? This is sounding eerily familiar. Remember, Keith is on death row, accused, charged, and convicted of killing alleged snitches at Lucasville during a prison riot. Now he's telling me he started a riot, or disturbance, where he roughed up snitches who tried to sabotage his hunger strike? So you were accused of killing snitches at Lucasville, mm-hmm. but you said that you attacked some of the snitches who had told the administration at Mansfield about your food stash. Can you just tell me why those two things are different? Well, I don't know that they are different. Um I don't know that they are different. I haven't even made that correlation, but I can see how somebody right now could, you know, make that correlation. Now people can say or use this incident to kind of say, well, aha, he's doing the same thing that he's being accused of. The difference is that now I'm in a situation that if I kill somebody, there's no repercussions for it. Because you can only put me on death row one time. You can only kill me one time. And so now if I'm this person, now I can be this person with no consequence. That was the opportunity I could have killed the guards, but I didn't. And I could have held the guards hostage, but I didn't. And, you know, I'm glad you asked that question because, I, you know, one of the things that people typically do, they judge you outside of the context. They judge you from the standpoint of them sitting in their living room and based on what was normal, based on the circumstances that they are living in. Reportedly, the riot, or disturbance, at Mansfield Correctional Institution is over in roughly five hours. Three corrections officers suffered minor injuries and seven inmates were assaulted, including Jason Robb, one of the so-called Lucasville Five. Allegedly, he was severely beaten by responding officers. Months later, Keith says officers come to punish him. They came and they, they beat me up. Um, they dragged me to another cell. I uh, probably had a concussion. My ribs were very sore, probably broken. It was hard to breathe. They put me in a strip cell. They took all the bedding, took all my clothing, except for my boxers, and left me in this freezing cold um, cell. And I was uh, under constant watch. They had a camera embedded in the, in the wall above the door. And so I was under constant surveillance. And I uh, remember um, being very, very cold and having to cut a hole in the mattress and crawl inside the mattress. And when they saw that, they came in and confiscated the mattress. And so here I am now, um, I'm stripped down to my underwear and freezing cold in the cell, no mattress, no nothing soft to lie down on. And um, I wasn't receiving any of my mail. So my family didn't know where I was. Keith says his friends and family can't get a hold of him. He seems to have gone missing. 
about two months later, he's returned to his cell. I was in this very, like, distressful situation. And then one day out of the blue, after having not heard from my family or any of my loved ones, I received this letter from Rebecca Collins. For some reason, they allowed her letter to come through. Rebecca Collins, the daughter of Herman Carson, Keith's 1995 trial attorney. Back then, she's 12, and her letter is decorated with hearts, exclamation points, and smiley faces. The letter was like um, finding a well of water in the, in the desert after going weeks without any water. It just, you know, uh, reawakened my spirit in a way that, that, that really kind of saved me. Today, Rebecca is an advisor in the College of Arts and Sciences at Ohio University. She also spent 14 years teaching sociology and criminology there. I speak with her over Zoom. So Keith is found guilty and goes off to Mansfield. Yes. And is this when you start writing, Keith? Yeah, I want to say it was, you mean, right around my 12th birthday or shortly thereafter. I know that my mom had sent him some letters. I know that my older sister, Katie, was writing to Keith. And so I asked my dad if I could write to Keith. And he said yes. If I remember correctly, my mom had some reservations about that. Um, You know, being a 12-year-old little girl, writing somebody in a correctional facility. But I was allowed to do it. What would you write to Keith about? I talk about school. I talked about riding horses. I talk about sports that I was playing. Um, Just, you know, all things that I think are typical of, you know, I mean, of, of being 12. I don't know. I just, we formed a friendship. And my letters to him, kind of like writing in a diary, but this way your diary actually responds. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, he would ask me questions about my horse and, and you know, ask me questions about sports. And he was very considerate of the fact that I was young and not telling me things that he was experiencing. He's my big brother and I'm his little sister. And that's just a connection that we formed and that we continue to this day. Here's Keith again. Because I do consider her a part of my family. I call her affectionately my little sister. We've been, you know, and remained very close over the years. Yeah, one of my most important relationships, yeah. When she went to college, she did her master thesis on the overrepresentation of black men in prison. And then she, when she became a professor, she invited me several times to, to have conversations with them about the criminal justice system and about my experience through the criminal justice system. So she and I have remained extremely close over the years. About seven months after Rebecca and Keith start corresponding, Keith says he and the other four from Lucasville are taken in the middle of their night from their cells at Mansfield and driven about two hours to their new home, the newly constructed Supermax Prison in Youngstown, Ohio. Supermax prisons are the highest level security prisons in the U.S. Typically in these places, inmates have little to no time outside of their cells very few activities and very little contact with other humans. When I got here, it was easy to see that these COs had been told stories about us, about me specifically. And so I was being cast as one of the most dangerous prisoners in the state of Ohio. And that's how they treated me when I first arrived here. They needed us to say something 
disrespectful to do something disrespectful to either beat us down, spray us with maids, lock us down, strap us down, lock us up, and all these other things. But it never happened. I always had control over myself. I'm still viewed as one of the uh, the worst of the worst. You know, I've had my toothbrush put in the toilet. Um, I've had guards come into my cell when I was on a visit and spray mace into my laundry bag. You know, uh, and so when I put on my underwear, I'm all of a sudden I'm itching. But the thing that I don't think COs, at least initially, I don't think the thing they say fully understand is that when you dehumanize somebody, you dehumanize yourself in the process. And, you know, there's been like a lot of COs who work here who have committed suicide because it was just too much. They've been asking too much. Just poor people being asked to oppress other poor people. And, you know, there's a price for that. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment... Oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from ATT Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. ATT Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit ATT.com slash hypergig for details. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. From 1998 through 2002, all of Keith's appeals in state court, all the way up to the Ohio State Supreme Court, are denied. Basically, they reject Keith's many claims, asserting his trial in 1995 was unjust and unfair. They say nothing done back then or anything presented since would have changed the outcome of his trial. It's a series of defeats, one after another. But around this time, there's some much-needed levity brought to Keith's otherwise very heavy situation. He reconnects with an old friend from home, Ken Wright. Yeah, that's one of my best friends. When I say best, I don't mean he's my favorite friend, though that that is the case. But he's my best friend, you know what I mean? The best dressed, most intelligent, everything, you know what I mean? (laughs) Keith was 15 and Ken was 14 when they met in high school and played basketball together. 
Ken invited me over to his lovely home about 30 minutes south of Cleveland to talk about his longtime friendship with Keith. I can just remember he was like a celebrity in school almost, you know, because he would he'd come walking down the hall. And he, you know, if you can almost imagine like a red carpet paparazzi, he, he, he'd walk down the hall, he'd just, he'd just hold court. And you just hear from different directions, Keith, 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 Keith. You know, he's waving, you know, yeah, okay. I see he's pointing, he's waving. You know, people just had a lot of respect for him and people, you know, loved being around him. You know, he was just that, that sort of guy. Today, Ken works as an analyst for the Department of Veterans Affairs. He's also an Air Force vet who served in Desert Storm and a proud father of two adult daughters. And he, he spoke to me in depth about the reason why he didn't take the deal. He felt as though he said, it basically just would have crushed him. He, it would have eaten him alive. And he says, I just couldn't do it, even though they promised me and told me that, that you know, I would receive no additional time. It would be a concurrent sentence. He said, I just couldn't do it. I, I didn't do this. None of it really made sense to me. One, just knowing how he was as a person. Two, the common sense person in me Never been to prison, but there, there are certain prison politics. And from my point of view, typically, there's no 21-year-old who heads up, orchestrates, and runs the, an entire death squad. It, it just doesn't happen. You know, you have real grown men in there. Could it happen? Yeah, maybe. But I, I just don't. I don't see that. And I didn't see. He randomly said something to me that basically kind of cemented what I felt he said, trust me, I wasn't running anything in that facility. He said, man, I was just trying to survive, you know, period. Yeah, so he confirmed the basic notion that I had about him being able to orchestrate and run a, you know, as they term it, a death squad or something like that. Yeah, it defies logic. Ken has been a great source of, of, of support. Ken has always kind of encouraging me to pursue my potential, to pursue the best in myself. And, um, yeah, he's been doing that since we've been teenage, teenagers, and I finally um, listened to him, finally found something in myself to kind of confirm what he's been saying or seen all along. And so, yeah, he's been a great help in my life. And because of what's coming, Keith will need all the help and unconditional support he can get. In 2004, after roughly nine years on death row, Keith's fight to prove his innocence officially moves to the federal level. His new attorneys, David Doughton and Kate McGarry, file a writ of habeas corpus, which means produce the body. If granted, it will allow them to bring Keith in front of a judge to determine if he's being held lawfully or not. Amongst other things, Keith's attorneys allege that prosecutors suppressed evidence that could have been used in Keith's defense which violates due process and is commonly known as a Brady violation. Brady refers to the landmark 1963 United States Supreme Court case, Brady v. Maryland, which established that prosecutors must turn over any evidence that might exonerate a criminal defendant. We uh, asked the courts for a judiciary hearing to kind of suss out what was the protocol that uh, prevented the state from turning over what was what we consider was exculpatory evidence, evidence that was favorable to my defense. 
we want to know why they made the decisions that they made during trial to deprive me of this evidence. And the magistrate judge uh, agreed that we should kind of, you know, figure this out. And so I was the only one, I think, then and now who have received, who, who has received the evidentiary hearing as it relates to the Lucasville uh, prison uprising. Keith is granted an evidentiary hearing, which is a pretty big deal. On July 9th, 2007, scores of people descend on the United States District Court for the Southern District of Ohio at Dayton. The two-day hearing will be presided over by Chief Magistrate Judge Michael Mertz. His job will be to listen to the evidence presented, then write a report and recommendations for the assigned district court judge. To be clear, all of this is to decide whether or not Keith was denied due process and his constitutional rights were violated in 1995, and if he should now receive a new trial. Back to Keith and Dayton. The courtroom was packed. My mom, who's now deceased, my cousin Kevin, who's now deceased, they were in attendance. My uncles and aunts and cousins and, you know, supporters, my friends, everyone was there, including the attorneys of the other defendants who were also convicted as a result of the riot. At the hearing, Keith and his attorneys argue that in 1995, prosecutors and the trial court played a game of hide the ball by not turning over evidence that could prove his innocence. During the two days of testimony, several people take the stand, but the star witness is Mark Peepmeyer. He was, and is, a prosecutor out of Hamilton County. After the uprising, he was appointed as the special prosecutor in charge of all the Lucasville cases. He was the special prosecutor, so we didn't see him. He didn't try the cases. He decided um, who would be indicted, and also decided that that was discriminatory evidence, what would be turned over. And and what was that like to see him on the stand? He was a mysterious figure up until that point. You know, we've heard his name, but we hadn't saw his face. And so when they called him and he walked into the courtroom, I remember being struck by how normal he appeared. Because, you know, I was looking for um, a devil, basically somebody who um, was out for evil, and he just looked like a normal pencil pusher, you know, with, uh, with, with glasses on, a you know, normal uh, average attorney. And, and he took the stand and, you know, was very composed, very articulate, and, you know, um, presented without any qualms this real bizarre application of Brady, no one even to this day, in terms of attorneys that I've spoken to, have ever heard of any uh, um, uh, arrangement of Brady as he had formulated it. So how did Mark Pietmeyer explain the state's application of Brady to Keith's case? In his deposition testimony prior to the evidentiary hearing, he said the state utilized, quote, a narrow Brady standard. And he basically explains it this way. There were several people involved in each of the murders. No one was killed by just one person. And each of the killings happened during a very chaotic scene. So if a witness named a bunch of people as the perpetrators, but didn't specifically say Keith wasn't there or Keith didn't do it, Mark Peepmeyer didn't necessarily consider that exculpatory or favorable evidence, and therefore it wasn't turned over to the defense. Because even though the witness didn't exclude Keith, it doesn't mean he wasn't there or a participant. 
So if I understand this correctly, it's like this. Let's say I'm at a big family reunion and a fight breaks out. When I'm asked who threw punches during the brawl, because it's a crazy scene, I might naturally leave some names out. But that doesn't mean that those people weren't there or didn't take part. On the other hand, if I'm asked who was involved in this family reunion fight and I say I saw Tony, Monique, Clarence, and Michelle throw punches, I don't think I would ever voluntarily offer up Nicole wasn't there or Nicole didn't punch anyone. I mean, without being explicitly asked about Nicole's involvement. Also, part of this narrow application of Brady is if an inmate said something that could have helped Keith but was deemed not to be credible, that also wasn't necessarily handed over to the defense. After Mark Peepmeyer testifies, the two prosecutors from Keith's 1995 trial take the stand. What did that feel like to have Seth Teeger and Bill Anderson questioned by your attorneys? Seth Teeger in particular, you know, real snobbish um, person, real um, very like smug throughout the whole process. He was the one that really struck me as deriving joy from depriving me of my constitutional rights. When the two-day hearing concludes, I left that whole proceeding thinking that finally someone had heard my cry and that this thing would be set right. Here's Keith's lawyer, Herman Carson. I thought he had a good chance just from some of the questions the judge asked during the testimony and um, just the overall tenor of the you know, the proceeding. I thought that it was you know, a good chance he was going to get relief. So they wait and wait. Then three full years after Keith's evidentiary hearing, their wait is finally up. Chief Magistrate Mertz issues his 183-page report and recommendations. Mertz says the evidence of Keith's guilt produced at trial was overwhelming, and none of the statements presented at the hearing would have changed the 1995 verdict. Mertz recommends Keith's conviction be upheld. Well, you know, I, I, I was devastated, obviously. The magistrate basically says whatever was presented at this hearing, whatever new, it would not have changed the outcome of your trial. How can that not make a difference if the system itself is legit? So, of course, he's going to, you know, say, you know, that this wouldn't change the outcome because he's talking about more than just the outcome in my situation. It's not really about Keith Lamar. We don't give a damn about Keith Lamar about us upholding the system, keeping this thing, you know, intact. Six months later, a district judge agrees with the magistrate's report. It was an absolutely horrible opinion. I thought that it was, you know, a good chance he was going to get relief in federal court, but he did not. Keith isn't granted relief, but after what came out at the evidentiary hearing— Lawyers for the four other death row inmates are given new evidence they didn't have at their trials. That's something that Keith's attorneys could have done as well. But according to Keith and the U.S. District Court docket, they did not. I'm the only one whose attorneys, for whatever reason, didn't make the necessary motions. And so even though these admissions made by Mark Peekmeyer were made at my evidentiary hearing, 
I was the only one not allowed to uh, benefit from those um, emissions. Despite their often rocky relationship, attorneys Kate McGarry and David Doughton continue to represent Keith for the next few years. I reached out to Kate McGarry, who is now a district judge in New Mexico, to see if she'd be willing to talk with me about Keith's case. She wrote me back, quote, I am not interested. Please do not contact me again. I also reached out to David Doughton. We exchanged a couple of emails. In one of them, he wrote in part, quote, Myself and Kate McGarry withdrew as he made up bald-faced lies about us. So we withdrew. We had to ethically. So I would not be a good person to talk to. By the way, I have also reached out to Mark Peepmeyer, but he has yet to respond. My, you know, problem with Kate Davis that they sabotaged my case, but I wasn't paying them. The state was paying them, so they did what the state wanted to do, not what I wanted them to do, and that's a fact. They get to talk about ethics and shit when they fuck me over. Oh, you got my blood pressure up. I'll tell you what, if I one day find myself strapped to a gurney, that these people would not be able to call it justice, would not be able to say that we did right by this person. I had this recurring dream that I'm in this little complicated place, real complicated, you know, way to get out of it, get out of it every time. I have to crawl through these little real tight spaces. Sometimes I'm upside down. I can't explain it to you, but I know my way out of that. If I get the help I need, I'm going to get out of this. They never thought, they thought I was going to give up, they thought I was going to... Turn my back on myself. Wrong about that. It was wrong about me. I'm going to win my life back. I'm going to expose these people in the process. I believe in that with everything that I am, Leah. I, I get upset because they did this to a 23-year-old kid in from the ghetto with no resources, dysfunctional family, broken family, all that they, you know, set into motion. But yeah, you know, it's not over yet. It's not over. Every fiber of my being, I believe that. Get my life back. Next time on The Real Killer. What you told police was just different than what you shared with me. My investigation takes a turn, which leads to new questions. I've omitted some details because it involves other people. You want to have a conversation? Let's have a conversation. The Real Killer is a production of AYR Media and iHeartRadio, hosted by me, Leah Rothman. Executive producers Leah Rothman and Eliza Rosen for AYR Media. Written by Leah Rothman. Executive producer, Paulina Williams. Senior associate producer, Jill Pashesnik. Coordinator, George Fom. Editing and sound design by Cameron Taggy. Mixed and mastered by Cameron Taggy. Audio engineering by Matt Jacobson. Studio engineering by Anna Mulishan. Legal counsel for AYR Media, Gianni Douglas. Executive producer for iHeartRadio, Maya Howard. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. 
Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org.